Uh, we're going to be we're going to be in the neglected little brother of the Gospels today. So that's Luke. Uh, I, I think of him that way. Matthew's the first one in the New Testament, so people go to him lots. Mark is, is short and busy, and lots of things go on there. He just casts out a bunch of demons, and before you know it, the gospel is done. And then in John, there's, there's a whole bunch of other stuff there, and he's, he's, Jesus is making these big, huge speeches that he doesn't make in some of the other gospels. So sometimes I, I think Luke gets overlooked. And I, uh, even when I was preparing for this, I was reading through some things, and I was just thinking, my goodness, like I haven't even noticed some of these really key things that happen in this gospel. So we're going to be in Luke, chapter 22. So feel free to flip there. This is, uh, this is connected very much to, uh, to Easter, and this is something that you might think, hold on, this isn't Good Friday, why are you talking about this stuff? But this is, is connected to uh, some of the things that happen after Jesus is raised from the dead. And Luke 22 is a very intense chapter. That's, that's perhaps one of the best ways you can explain it. It's a very intense chapter. We're thrown right into the, the end of Holy Week, so Jesus has already, Palm Sunday has happened. He's already entered into Jerusalem. He knows why he's going there. Uh, earlier in the book of Luke, the author tells us that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And he knew that this was the path that he had to travel down. This is where he needed to go. He needed to march intently towards his death. So we're thrown right into the, the end of Holy Week. And uh, at the beginning of chapter 22, we're told that Satan has entered the heart of Judas. So the, 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 the spiritual intensity of the whole chapter is ratcheted up just big time compared to some of the other things that are going on in Luke. Satan has entered into the heart of Jesus, one of Christ's chosen disciples. So Judas went away and he sought out an opportunity to betray his Lord. He wanted to do it. He sought out a chance to do it. Satan had entered his heart and this is what he did in response to it. Then as Jesus and his disciples are eating the Passover, uh, Jesus does this shocking thing of breaking the bread offering it to them and declaring that it is his body. This is my body, broken for you. And then declaring that the cup is the new covenant in his blood. During this Passover meal. So this is Christ instituting the Lord's Supper. These are the texts that we read when we say, okay, why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, the way we do? We look to passages like this. So talk talk of his, his body broken and his blood poured out. Like this is graphic stuff. This is serious stuff. This is hinting at his death. Not more than hinting. This is strongly implying his death. And it's getting clearer and clearer that there's something dangerous around the corner for Jesus. Things are just getting more grave and more serious as Luke uh, progresses in telling his story. So this this is the, the scene that we're in, in Luke 22. And then if you look uh, at about ch- uh, verse 24. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. In the context of this whole somber uh, discussion, what do the disciples decide to do? They decide to get into a discussion about who's Mr. Big Shot among them. And you, and you can kind of read this chapter and see these little individual sections and just not really be aware of how they connect to each other. But think about that. In verse 24 it says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Their Lord has just told them that his body is going to be broken for them, and they decide that they want to talk about who's the greatest among them. We're not not supposed to miss the irony of that and just the the shock of that. How does a conversation like that get started? In the middle of such a grave moment, how does a conversation like that get started? These chosen men who have walked with Jesus, they've heard his teaching, they've seen his mighty power at work, now they're listening to him talk about his impending betrayal and death. The whole tone is very heavy. The whole discussion, and they decide this is a good time to argue about who's really great among us. 
This is what we're going to do. This is how we want to spend our last few moments with Jesus. So we kind of think, how, how does this actually get started? Well, I think that we, we have a clue as to how maybe this got going when we look at uh, verse 23. So Jesus had predicted that one of the disciples would betray him. And in verse 23 it says, They began to question one another, which of them, which of them it could be who is going to do this. So they hear this from Jesus. They, be, they begin questioning one another. Which one of us is this going to be? Okay, so one of us is a traitor. One of us is a traitor. Well, which one of us? Surely it's not me. I just cast demons out of ten people last week. Maybe it's you. How come it's not you, James? And James comes back and says, why would I betray him? I'm in his special inner circle. Why would it be me? How could it possibly be me? So we can kind of get a sense of how very quickly, if, if they're trying to determine who's the one who's going to betray them, it could very quickly shift into a conversation about who's the greatest. Because they're saying, no, 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 like, I'm, I'm significant. Why would I do it? I, I belong to this family. I belong to this inner circle. I've done these great things for him. I've obeyed him in this sort of way. So we can really picture this happening. We can imagine how a dispute like this might have got going. And the dispute uh, wraps up with Jesus doing a couple things. First, he redefines what true greatness even is. He says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. And second, he reaffirms that his 12 disciples will indeed have a special role in the kingdom. So he, said, he, re, he redefines what greatness even means, but he doesn't just leave it at that. He says, yeah, there is something special to come for you. You're going to sit at my right hand and you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. There is a special place for you, my chosen disciples. So they will indeed be significant figures, but not great in the sense that the world uh, might think. Not great in the sense that they might think. Then Jesus turns to one disciple. So right after this, then Jesus turns to one disciple in particular. And he says this, and I think we have these words on the screen perhaps. This is verse 31. So right after this, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So uh, last week, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we had some of the, the videos of the drama, and they, they, were, uh, they were recreating some of this stuff here. We're talking about this rooster crowing and Peter uh, denying his Lord. And this, is, this is Jesus predicting that this is going to happen. So let's picture again that dispute about greatness that's taking place just before this happens. So the disciples, they're, they're all at each other. They're grilling each other, trying to find out who might be the traitor among them. And maybe this evolves into boasting about a special status or role that they play within the twelve. So can you imagine what happened when the question came to Peter? I actually think about that. Can you imagine what happened when the question came to Peter? Because it probably did. It doesn't tell us specifically that it did, but it probably did. The text says that they're all questioning each other. So what would have happened when they go around the horn and the questioning comes to Peter? What would Peter's response be to that? So think about what happens when you get defensive. When, some, when a conversation like this is happening and someone's singling you out and challenging you with something. What happens when you get defensive? You want to use every weapon that you have at your disposal to try to deflect some of the attention away from you. To try to prove that this isn't a, a justifiable charge that someone has thrown at you. 
And Peter had some pretty good weapons at his disposal, I think. You can imagine some of the stuff that he might have said if he was being extra defensive. So he was, Peter's there at the transfiguration, for one thing. Jesus invites Peter, James, and John, and he goes and he, he climbs atop this mountain, and he, he, he's just radiant in all of his glory. This is something that Peter gets to witness. There was the whole uh, walking on water thing. It didn't end super well, but still, it happened. Peter might have wanted to bring that up, that he was particularly chosen for that. But then there was other stuff, too, and even more significant things. Matthew uh, 16, 18, Jesus says, You are Peter. So Kepha in, in Aramaic, you are Peter, and on this rock... Kepha, again, same word, I will build my church. You are a rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Did did he say that to the rest of you guys, Peter could have said? No, he said that to me. He was talking to me when he said that. And then there's this whole thing about, right after that text, there's this whole thing about Jesus offering Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Who knows what that means, but it's sure significant. It sounds like it might mean something pretty significant. Think about how Peter could have used that. Did he give that to you guys? No, he gave it to me. He's getting defensive. He's trying to say, I'm not the one who's going to betray him. So sure, yeah, I'm, I'm going to betray him. That's what I'm going to do. He gave me the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and you think it's going to be me? Bug somebody else about it. Talk to Bartholomew. No one even knows what he's up to anyway. He doesn't ever say anything. Like, they could have thrown him under the bus pretty easily. So this is all speculative, of course. Like, we, we don't know if this is, this is exactly how it went down, but it very well could have. And I think it might have. When you think about who Peter was and his zeal and his passion and the way that he singled out as being somebody important. So maybe he didn't respond with any of this sort of boasting, but we do know, we do know how he responded to Jesus when Christ singled him out with this word of warning in verse 31 that we looked at. There's really, uh, uh, there's a couple things that are interesting here in this section. First of all, Jesus first calls him Simon. Simon, Simon. This is his pre-Christian name that he calls him. Peter, which means rock, as we talked about. This was the name Jesus gave him, but Christ first calls him Simon. Okay, he calls him that first, and then when he predicts his denial, then he calls him Peter. And he performs this little switcheroo. This is the only time in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus addresses Peter by name directly, and this is how he chooses to do it. So kind of interesting. He does this ominous little switch. He calls him Simon, and then he tells you, I tell you, O rock, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. There's more than a little irony there. This rock here, you're the one who's going to falter. You're going to deny me three times. So second thing, uh, in the Greek text, in verse 31, when Jesus says, you, it's plural. So if you, look at, if you look at your scriptures there, in verse 31, when he says, you, it's plural. And then in verse 32, when he says, you, it's singular. He switches from the group to just Peter. From verse 31 to verse 32. And this is fascinating, and some uh, translations bring this out better than others. But this means that Satan hasn't demanded to sift only Peter. It's all of the apostles. And yet, it's Peter that he singles out to let him know this. He's addressing Peter when he's saying this. Behold, Peter, Satan's desire is to violently shake all of you out to see what you're made of. He thinks Peter needs to know this. Satan's desire is to sift you like wheat to see what you're made of. But then Jesus switches back to singular and he turns to Peter when he says, but I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith might not fail. Jesus has prayed for him. Jesus, the God-man, has prayed for a mere mortal, Peter, but Jesus still knows what's going to happen, even though he's prayed for him. He says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So not if, but when. When this happens, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now in English, 
You say, you say someone is turned when, when they're a traitor. They've turned on you. They've turned. They've defected or something like that. But Jesus isn't saying, uh, when you've been a traitor yet again, strengthen your brothers. Turn has to do with returning, repentance, turning back towards Christ. That's what he means here. When you've turned again, when you've come back to me, strengthen your brothers. And if we understand this as repentance, this is huge. Because this means that Jesus' grace is so profound. Jesus' grace is so profound that before, Jesus, or before Peter has even faltered, Jesus is already giving him a job for when he's restored yet again. Before he's even made the mistake. He's saying, this is what I want you to do. Strengthen your brothers. So think about how beautiful that is. Think about how significant that is to say that. It's not, it's not don't you dare do it, Peter. Don't you dare do it, because if you do, everything's ruined. He doesn't say that. He says, you shouldn't do this. Satan's trying to sift you. You shouldn't do this. I don't want you to do this. But if you do, even after you do, I want you to turn again to me and I have a job for you to do. So this verse uh, made an ancient Christian bishop. He said this. He said, Oh, what great and incomparable kindness. The affliction of faithlessness has not yet even made the disciple ill and already he's received the medicine of forgiveness. He gets the balm. He gets, he gets the, the medication that he needs before he even knows he needs it yet. So, with all this in mind, you might think that Peter would hear this and take it to heart. Okay, there's this warning that's happened. Jesus himself tells you that he's praying that your faith won't fail. A proper response might be, pray for me more. This is an urgent, scary thing. Pray for me more. Give me strength. Give me courage to stand firm so that my faith won't fail. But no, what does Peter do? He decides this is once again the perfect time to talk about how awesome he is. This is what he's going to do at this moment. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Just declares it right after Jesus makes this warning. Peter's pride is so offended by the first part of what Jesus says that he fully misses out on the grace that's offered in the second part. There's a gracious thing, just like that quote that we read. There's a gracious thing that Jesus is saying here, and Peter completely misses it. He doesn't want to think about that because he's offended that you'd even think that I would do this. That's not who I am. I would go with you to prison and to death. He's so unwilling to hear that Satan's sifting might actually get to him that he doesn't let Christ's command actually sink in. Christ's gracious command. So uh, think back to what we were saying about, about Peter's reasons that he might have had to be self-assured. Okay, so it's hard to think that some of those reasons might not have uh, contributed to Peter's boasting here, to his sense of confidence that he could say some of these things. Lord, how could you say that my faith might fail? How could you say that to me? It's me, Peter, you named me that for a reason. Surely there's something special about me. So again, this is speculative. We don't know if this is exactly what he thought or felt. But if Peter did say or feel something even remotely similar to this, think of how badly Peter had missed the point of what Jesus had just said moments before. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, as the lowliest, as the neediest, like a little child who needs help. Let the greatest among you do that. Now Peter's boasting. So we probably know how the rest of the story goes. After this, sure enough, the truth cannot lie. Jesus himself is not going to lie. 
And what he said comes to pass. Peter denies Jesus three times, just like he said what happened. And again, we can, we can guess as to the reasons why he did this. You can put yourself kind of in his shoes and think of the pressure and the fear and the doubt and the discouragement and just the, the shock of everything that's going on, and that's maybe why he did it. And we don't know. But one thing that's very certain is this. One thing that's very certain is that Peter would have never thought that his time as a disciple would amount to this. He was strong and significant. He was passionate. He was the rock. He was zealous. He he was there from the very beginning. He was one of the first ones called. He was there from the very start walking with Jesus for these few years. And what did it all amount to in the end? Peter denying that he even knew Jesus and going out and weeping bitterly. That's what it amounted to. He denied him three times. And Luke, Luke points out that he wasn't, this didn't happen all at once. Like Luke makes a special point of, of showing us this. He says that it happens once, and then some time passes. He denies him again. And then about an hour later, Luke even points out about an hour had passed. And Peter denies him a final time. And I can just imagine, after those first two denials... When he's saying, I don't even know the man, I can just imagine Peter saying to himself, what am I doing? Like, what, what am I doing? How is this happening? How am I actually doing this? How are these words coming out of my mouth? And I think all of us, if we're honest, we've found ourselves in situations where that happens. Moments of disobedience, moments of a lapse in judgment, and we just think, how am I actually doing this? How is this me? This isn't me. This isn't something that I would do. And I can just picture that's something that Peter would be feeling so acutely in his soul He never would have imagined this. And after the third denial, Luke tells us that the Lord turned to look at Peter. The Lord turned to look at Peter. Peter locks his gaze upon the eyes of Jesus, the the beaten and battered and bloodied eyes of Jesus, and he locks eyes with him. And that's the moment when it all, the penny drops for Peter, and he knows what has just happened, and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. It all comes crashing down for him. He sees Christ looking upon him, and he's gone. He's done. And Jesus is taken away and killed after this. And on that side of the cross, we don't really hear about Peter anymore. Peter's last look from his Lord is a look of sorrow and disappointment and betrayal and pain. And so, this, this is who Peter is now. When it really mattered, he couldn't withstand the enemy's sifting. He fell right through. He didn't think he would, but he did. So how differently Peter must have felt now about his strength and about his status, about his special role. He failed. He lost his chance. He wouldn't be the disciple that he thought he'd be. Lord, I'd go to prison and even to death for you. And he wouldn't do that. That's not going to happen. Instead, he'll deny him and he'll go back to being a fisherman as a failed disciple. This is his new reality. This is who he is. Now, we've just, we've been through the Easter season, so obviously we we know this isn't exactly where the story goes from here. Something different happens. But Peter didn't know that at the time. That weekend of darkness, Peter had no idea. As far as he was concerned, this is who he would remain. This, This scene of his betrayal would replay in his mind forever. And he knew that. It was already haunting him. He weeps bitterly as soon as he realizes what he's done, and he knows that there's going to be a lot more weeping to come. So fast forward a couple days. Peter's fishing. He realizes Jesus himself somehow resurrected Jesus. He's on the shore. 
Peter jumps out of the boat. He can't even wait. He's with a bunch of other guys. He can't even wait. He jumps in the water and swims towards the shore. He's so excited to see him. And he frantically swims to him, and they all have breakfast together. And, I, and Peter must be so elated that he's seeing him again. Like, I, I imagine that he's not even thinking straight about this. He's, he must be so elated that he's seeing him, seeing him again that he's not thinking. For one moment, he's not thinking about this scene that's been replaying in his mind nonstop. And then they finish breakfast. If you go to John uh, chapter 21, we see a very important scene here. I think we have the words on the screen here. Starting at verse uh, 15, going to verse 19. He swam to him. They're having breakfast together. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying all this, he said to him, follow me. Uh, when Peter jumps out of the boat and he, and he just swims over to Jesus, when he does this, John tells us that they were all sitting around a charcoal fire. He points out that little detail. Sitting around a charcoal fire. A couple days before, when Peter denied his Lord, it happened in the middle of the night. He was with a group of outsiders warming themselves by a charcoal fire. A charcoal fire and three questions. The scene that has been tormenting Peter, the scene that's been replaying in his mind, Jesus isn't going to let Peter forget it. He's going to recreate it. But not to shame him, not to cause him to despair, but to utterly and completely restore him. The identity that Peter thought that he'd live with for the rest of his life, this, this identity that he thought he would have is completely superseded by this new identity that Christ gives him in this moment. His opportunity to be a faithful disciple is resurrected. And this, this command that Christ uh, gave to him would be fulfilled. He would strengthen his brothers. He would go to prison for his Lord. He would face death as a result of his faithful witness. And he would go to a cross. Tradition tells us that Peter would go to a cross and instead of denying Jesus, in that moment when he had the opportunity to, for another time, instead of denying Jesus, he would insist on being crucified upside down because he said he was unworthy of dying in the same fashion as his Lord. It's a completely new story that he's given, a completely new identity. The story that Peter thought was etched in stone was changed dramatically. And we all need to be reminded that the resurrection of Christ means that none of our identities are etched in stone the way that we think that they are. Christ offers a new identity to all who turn again to Jesus. So you might be like Peter. In this scene, you might be like Peter, and you've done things that now seem to define you, and you can't believe it. You can't believe you've done those things. How is this me? How are these the things that I've done? You never thought that that would be you. And it feels permanent. This is who I am now, I guess. 
have to own up to this new identity. Or you might even feel like Jesus in, in being the betrayed one. Someone that you loved and trusted went against their word and let you down. And what these passages and, and what Easter tells us is that there's hope for both sides. If you're the betrayer, if you're the one who's done the betraying, you can turn again. You can be like Peter and turn again. Christ's love and willingness to restore are deeper than any sin. Deeper than any scene that's been replaying in your mind. You can follow Jesus and you can allow Jesus to overwrite any scenario that you feel has defined you. If he can do it for the one that he promised the keys of the kingdom, and even he let him down, he can do it for you too. Or if you're the one betrayed, you feel as though you're the one betrayed, you can offer your sufferings to Christ. And it's, it's sad to say that there's no easy answer for this one. There isn't any quick fix if you're the one who's betrayed, if you're the one who's suffering right now. But you can offer your sufferings to Christ. You can offer your sufferings to the crucified Messiah. We worship a Jesus who has is, who is dealt with and experienced emotional, physical, and psychological pain in a way we can't imagine. Yet he remained faithful, and he remained forgiving. He wasn't only faithful to the vocation that God had given him, he remained forgiving. He was willing to reinstate Peter. The fact that Jesus suffered to the uttermost, and yet God brought him out the other side, means that even despite the most illogical pain and suffering that we're going through, there's hope for us if we endure. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, Paul says, if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. Hope beyond the pain that has to be endured through. Unite your sufferings to Christ. This is something that we have the privilege and the gift of doing as Christians. You can unite your sufferings to Christ. You can offer them up to him. You can know that God is faithful to those who endure. And you can know that you're part of a family that's been doing this for thousands of years. You can know that every saint who's ever lived knew that following a crucified Lord meant that the road was marked with pain. The enemy is still demanding to sift Christ's people like wheat. This is something he's in the business of doing, shaking us up to see what we're made of. He did it to Peter, he did it to Jesus, he's going to do it to us too. And like Peter, we're going to fail, and perhaps often, perhaps repeatedly, but just like how we did with Peter, Christ is ever willing to reinstate us. He's ever willing to say, let's try this again. Let's play this scene out again the way it was meant to be played out the first time. And that's a message of hope, and that's the message of the resurrected Christ. Let's pray together. Holy Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the way that you're forgiving. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you for the truth of, of this uh, story of what happened between you and this disciple of yours. And I ask that for those uh, here who feel like they fit on either side of that whole scenario, I ask that you can give them strength. You can give them hope to know that you're the one who's willing to restore, you're the one who's willing to give grace. And Lord, I pray especially for those who feel like they're the betrayed ones and the suffering ones. And I ask that you can teach us how to unite our sufferings to you. And how to know that um, if we endure with him, we're also going to reign with him. Give strength to those who need it. Give mercy to those who need it. Give them the resilience and the resolve to be faithful 
just like how your son was. Give us mercy. Bless us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.